1: This is Carrie Lynn Evans, welcoming you back to New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm looking forward to sharing with you The Dreamer and the Dream, Afrofuturism and Black Religious Thought by Professor Roger Sneed. In this wonderful book, Sneed illuminates the interplay of Black religious thought with science fiction narratives to present a bold case for Afrofuturism as an important channel for Black spirituality. In the process, he challenges the assumed primacy of the Black church as the arbiter of Black religious life. Incorporating analyses of Octavia Butler's parable books, Janelle Monae's Afrofuturistic saga, Star Trek's Captain Benjamin Sisko, Marvel's Black Panther, and the philosophies of Sun Ra and the Nation of Islam, Sneed demonstrates how Afrofuturism has contributed to Black visions of the future. He also investigates how Afrofuturism has influenced religious scholarship that looks to Black cultural production as a means of reimagining Blackness in the light of the sacred. The result is an expansive new look at the power of science fiction and Afrofuturism to center the diversity of Black spirituality. Roger A. Sneed is professor and chair of religion at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. His work involves the intersections of African-American religious thought and culture, Christian thought and gay male sexualities, and religious ethics. He is a contributor for Huffington Post and has previously published the book Representations of Homosexuality, Black Liberation Theology and Cultural Criticism. He joins me today to talk about his latest book. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African-American Studies. Roger, thank you so much for being here.
0: Uh, Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
1: So let's start with you. Tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to work in your field.
0: Well, that's a question that students ask me that um, (laughs) it's always funny because sometimes I can give them a five minute um, breakdown. Sometimes it winds up being 10 to 15 minutes. I am from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, I am a first-generation college graduate, uh, college professor, uh, first in my family to get a PhD. Um, I came to the field of religion, uh, as I joke with my students, that I kind of fell ass backwards into it, uh, in that I was going to uh, go to law school. I wanted to go to law school and uh, be on the Supreme Court by the time I was 40. Uh, I guess I didn't uh, realize that the difference between 20 and 40 wasn't that much. Um, I came to the study of religion because when I came out, uh, it didn't go over well with a lot of people. I was conflicted. Everybody else was conflicted. Uh, I was going to a charismatic non-denominational church at the time. And I'd gone to church one night, and um, this prophetess had, you know, prophesied over me or whatever. And I took that as a sign that I was ex-gay. But that didn't last too long. So I decided I don't know much about religion, so I need to go study religion. So I was like, all right, I'm going to get a Master's of Divinity, and I haven't really any idea what that meant. Uh then I came up, during that work, I came across uh, James Cone's work on Black liberation theology and said, okay, I want to do this, <laughs> but I want to do this for Black gay people. I wanted to write a Black gay theology of liberation. Um, so my work at that time and, and still is the intersection of African American religious thought sexuality and gender, uh, ethics, and pop culture. So uh, the process of coming back out uh, and then going to grad school and studying and reading um, kind of helped me realize that the work that I do is about, it's almost writing myself into existence, uh, but by the same token, writing other Black gays and in also Black nerds and so forth, into existence, at where we've been, I think, left out of the conversations uh, in African-American or Black religious um, thought.
1: Okay, excellent. So next, maybe tell us how you came to write this particular book.
0: Oh, this is going to be a longer one. Uh, <laughs> this book is, I, I call it my baby. I, it's the book I always wanted to write, but didn't know how to write. When when I mentioned before that I had been in grad school, by the time I got to the dissertation stage, I was tired of talking about homosexuality. <laughs> so I said to my advisor, you know what, I've gotten the answers that I think I wanted. I wanted to write, I want to write my dissertation on science fiction and ethics. And he said to me, are you going to get a job with, you're not going to get a job with that. And he was right. Because in the early 2000s, uh, writing about The intersections of religion and pop culture were largely kind of fringe uh, uh, texts that you would see them published, not by the major publishing houses in religion. You might see one or two, but those would really have to be theoretically uh, sound or thick texts. Um, For me, uh, after I wrote Representations of uh, Homosexuality and I got tenure... Uh, and the school I'm at is a primarily we're a teaching institution. We're not one of those research one institutions where you basically publish or perish. Uh, so I got tenure and wondered if I even had anything else to say. Uh, it was after Trayvon Martin, after Michael Brown. Uh, gosh, I, there's so many names, Sandra, uh, so many names. It became a a litany. Of names. And for me, the way I would cope with the grief of seeing yet another Black person executed by the police was I would turn to Star Trek. And I specifically would turn to the episode Far Beyond the Stars. And that would be the catharsis. That would be the catharsis for me. I would, you know, i watched the episode and I would usually just, you know, be in in tears. And that would be the emotional release that I would that I would kind of get me through. And so I thought to myself, I should write about this. There's something going on here. And at first, it was just going to be an essay uh, that I was, you know, going to get published in maybe a couple of journals or, or one journal, but the reviewer number two in one journal irritated me. So I sent it to another journal, and reviewer number two there irritated me. (laughs) So I said, screw it, I'm going to write a book. (laughs) And um, I had a friend, I have a a friend who uh, she had written, she'd read uh, the first version of this essay, and when I say she tore it apart, Uh, Kenitra Brooks, shout out to you, thank you, she, um, the feedback was brutal but beneficial. (laughs) It was absolutely necessary. So I I emailed her. I'm like, you know, you're you're a co-editor of this uh, series on speculative fiction gender. Do you think that this book that I'm thinking of could work? And she and her co-editor were like, absolutely, this would be excellent. And so I went back, started going back through some other essays that I had started and never finished. And I said, you know, I want to write about Octavia Butler. And I want to write about Janelle Monet. And I want to write about not just Star Trek. I want to write about other aspects of uh science fiction that have uh shaped how I see the world. And then I because I'd seen other people write about um, Afrofuturism, but those were only essays, not like full-length books. So uh As the essay became the seed for the book, I started thinking about other chapters and really getting excited because it was some, uh, especially when I sent out the prospectus or the uh, proposal, getting that feedback, that enthusiastic feedback saying, okay, we really need something like this. Uh, That helped me see that I was writing about something that wasn't just about, quote unquote, me but really speaking to, um, I think, a segment of Black religious scholarship that hasn't gotten the attention that I think it deserves.
1: Excellent. So let's get into it. Uh, Let's start with the basics, though. Tell us a little bit about race and science fiction generally, and then tell us about Afrofuturism for any listeners who are not already familiar with what that Mm -hmm. is.
0: Whew. uh race in science fiction I think if to sum it up it's uh pretty sad <laughs> that um for example, you know people who aren't really versed in science fiction will or are critical of the representations of race in science fiction will often turn to something like Star Trek and say, Look how badly race is represented in star trek uh I remember when I was in college uh, a couple i was uh and a group of friends and who we were all considered, we all considered ourselves uh, revolutionaries. Uh, ah, The folly of youth. We considered <laughs> ourselves revolutionaries. Um, and so my friends were all like, Star Trek is racist. And I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> and they were like, well, they were talking primarily about the next Star Trek, the next generation. They're like, well, look, you only have one black person and he's handicapped. Everyone else is Able-bodied, and then why is it the other black person has bumps on their forehead? They were talking about um, uh, the Klingon wharf, and so I'm explain- I was explaining how Jordy was a nod to a fan who was handicapped, who'd written to Gene Roddenberry, and this isn't <laughs> this isn't racist. However, there is a particularly awful episode of in the first season of of TNG called, um, oh God, uh, Code of Honor, I think. I think it's Code of Honor. It might be, I I can't remember. It's so horrible I don't watch the episode. It's an episode that is set on a planet of Black people, and it looks for all the world like a 1940s stereotype of uh, Africa. It is just awful. Um, there uh, for example, turning to Star Wars. Uh, the first time we see a black person in the Star Wars franchise is uh in The Empire Strikes Back, and it's Lando Calrissian. But Lando Calrissian is um he double, he's a uh, um uh he betrays the rebellion to uh, the empire. Um, and if you look at sci-fi in the '80s, you might see maybe one black person in a sci-fi movie, and if it's a sci-fi slash horror movie, they usually die. Um, or are minimized. I mean, even going back to Star Trek: The Original Series, uh, Lieutenant Uhura had way more lines in the first two seasons, but by the time it got to the third season, uh, she was essentially reduced to just saying "Halen frequencies open, uh, Captain." She might have had, I think, maybe one. Episode where she actually had more than a few lines. Um, Race, or we might even say racism in science fiction, uh, is such that when you're looking at who's producing the sci fi, if we're looking at the sci fi of the 80s and the 90s, it's largely white heterosexual men. And so you almost don't want them to say anything about race. But the problem is with that those um, explorations of race and racism that you might see in science fiction of, the de- of that day are often fairly, uh, how shall I put it, fairly monochromatic. Like even now, one of the criticisms of Star Trek is that when the Enterprise or any other ship goes to a world, the people of that world all look the same. That, that there's no, diff, real, no, no real differentiation among the alien of the weak. So race in science fiction, I would argue, often re- reflects the racism, uh, particularly of the United States, that we tend to engage in a kind of uh, monolithic approach to racism, to race. And so I think that shows up in things like Star Trek, shows up in Star Wars, shows up in a lot of other sci-fi. I think uh, TV series like Babylon 5 try to get at racism, but even then, uh, the alien races all look the same. They dress the same. There seems to be no differentiation among these, quote-unquote, alien races. So race in science fiction is a huge problem. It's a huge problem. Um, And I think... Afrofuturism is not trying to so much correct that uh, problem as it is to say, what if we're doing speculative fiction, be it sci-fi, horror, fantasy, um, with Black people doing the writing or the production and Black people being center stage? Afrofuturism, I I, I tend to go to Yatasha Womack's description of Afrofuturism where she says that if you were a Black kid and you watched Star Trek or Star Wars, or you read a comic book and you didn't see Black folks in it, and then you went about trying to do something about that, then you're an Afrofuturist. So that's kind of, to me, a more expansive approach to Afrofuturism. I'm seeing particularly Black religious scholars now trying to talk about Afrofuturism as a system of thought. And I tend to get a little nervous about that because if it becomes a system of thought, then it can become monolithic. Uh, I think, in some ways, I in the conversations about that, I wonder if I'm begin if I'm starting to contradict my own self when I'm writing about Afrofuturism. I just I get, uh, I get, or as a, as my advisor called me, iconoclastic. I get a bit nervous when i see people trying to build the fence if you will around afrofuturism Um, i look at afrofuturism as a way for black peoples to write and speak themselves into the speculative fictions that we were told that we weren't supposed to like if that I hope I hope that makes sense
1: yeah no I like that I I mean as we continue to talk I think the contours of what Afrofuturism could be or has Mm -hmm. been will start to emerge more so so yes let's leave it at that I like I like the expansive Mm. approach too, though. Um, Mm -hmm. turning to the, um, theological dimension or the religious dimension, I should say, you clarify that your book is quote, not a theological project. So Mm -hmm. I just thought that would be an interesting thing to get into. If you could explain what you mean by that and why that's the case.
0: Oh, that's a very good question. Uh, when I started writing this thing, I remember I had put, you know, pulling out a notepad and uh, scribbling down that there was going to be a chapter on Afrofuturistic theology, and I'd start writing, and I would run into a dead, dead end. I'd, uh, I'd run into a brick wall. And I kept asking myself, why am I having such trouble writing an Afrofuturistic theology? And then it hit me. I'm like, well, first of all, you're not a theologian. I am not a theologian. Um, I do write and teach about theology, but I am not a theologian in that I find theology. Oh, how shall I put this without uh, potentially angering your listeners? (laughs) I find theology sometimes amusing, often frustrating, in that I think we can all say something about a god and that it can fit the thing that we're, we're talking about. So when I was thinking, why wouldn't I want to talk about an Afrofuturistic god? I'm like, well, first of all, but to me, the god concept is itself fantastical. It is the stuff of science fiction and fantasy. It is the stuff that sci-fi and fantasy wrestles with all the time. So to write about God in the context of Afrofuturism, I'm like, well, then I'm writing a novel, um, not a theology, because, well, then what am I saying about, well, about God? Uh, You read a lot of theologies. A theology over here will say that God has a – like liberation theology will argue that God has a preferential option for the poor. Feminist theologies will argue that uh, we must uh, look at God in the feminine – LGBTQIA theologies will ask, "What if we queer the concept of God?" We God is so malleable. That concept is so malleable that, to me, it almost begins to collapse into uh, ir- not irrelevance, but uh, it collapses into almost nonsense. So I kept thinking, if I'm if I'm going to do this, then you're writing a, Am I writing a systematic theology? Uh, so then sci-fi and Afrofuturism kind of recedes into the background. and becomes just another, if you will, prop for me to talk about God when that's not what I want to do. I want to talk about Afrofuturism in the context of Black religious lives, how we see the world, in, once again, in a more expansive way. So I looked at Black religious thought. I'm like, oh, well, wait a minute, Roger. There, the, You labor in the field of Black religious thought. Uh, you're looking at the intersections of philosophy, of theology, of sociology, of pop culture, and so, these kinds of intersections. So Black religious thought, in short, is a much more productive field for me to work in. Black religious thought isn't Tied to theological uh, pronouncements, or theological commitments. Often, if you read um, like liberation theologies, there are certain kind of commitments that the writers have. They might have a commitment to the institutional church. They might have a commitment to their um, knowledge or memory of the church or of how they believe God works in the lives of the dispossessed. I don't hold those commitments. And so it also becomes a question of who's my audience. If I'm writing a theology, then my audience is narrowed. It becomes narrowed to a set of scholars and laypersons who are really committed once again, using that word, uh, committed to, I would say, doctrinal and ecclesiastical commitments. Um, And not being a Christian uh, and describing myself as an agnostic, I don't hold those commitments. So it was, I guess, two things, me writing about my own kind of commitments, but also the question of who is the audience that I want to read this. And for me, I think Black religious thought casts a wider net than theology.
1: Excellent. Okay. So your next two chapters examine a couple of female Afrofuturists, Octavia Butler and Janelle Monet, whom you call, quote, architects of intersectional Afrofuturism. Mm-hmm in that their works intentionally center non-gender conforming Black women. So let's start with novelist Octavia Butler. Tell us a little bit about her body of work, assuming that there's some folks out there who are unfamiliar with her, and how you see her work contributing to your ideas.
0: When I got to grad school, I had not heard of Black people writing science fiction. So when I was writing my dissertation, I uh, came across Samuel Delaney, who... is a a Black gay science fiction writer, Uh, both Samuel Delaney and Octavia Butler are considered, if you will, the godparents of Afrofuturism in that uh, both Delaney and Butler, the first Black folks who were publishing science fiction, and we're talking like in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, Octavia Butler comes along later into like the late 70s. Uh, Her work not just in the book Fledgling, which is this book about a Black vampire, but uh, I then turn to the Parable of the Sower and the Parable of the Talents, where the primary character, Lauren O'Amina, is not your typical uh, protagonist. Uh, She's not necessarily a likable character. Um, But nevertheless, the work that this character is doing in this book is creating a new religion uh, called Earthseed, uh, leading people through, if you will, a veritable wilderness, i.e., this wilderness of of Northern California during um, what we would characterize as an apocalypse, or if you will, a slow-moving apocalypse. So uh, uh, Butler's work generally situates Black women. At the, at the forefront, uh, does not engage in a kind of heroic... The, the characters are multi-layered and are multifaceted. They're not necessarily uh, the kind of people... Well, they're not bad people, but they're people who act human. <laughs> they're people who are human, who make mistakes, who can be petty, can be selfish, can be loving, can be kind. Um, I think Butler's most well-known works are the Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents, but also her book, uh, Kindred, uh, which was about this black woman who time travels from, uh, the seventies back to the 1800s. I haven't read the book. Um, I know a lot of people who have, um, and they have not been very happy with the uh, FX adaptation of the book into a series. They've argued that they did a lot of changes to the character, Dana, that you don't see in the book. But um, but people are drawn to, I would say, drawn to her work because it's the kind of science fiction that says, if this happens, then that happen she's not the kind of scholar not scholar she's not the kind of writer who uh does a lot of uh science fiction she's not writing space operas she's not writing grand uh epics about empires and so forth a lot of her work is really personal uh and then when i was doing research on her out at the huntington library which has all of her papers You see that I was reading her journals and seeing how the characters tend to reflect her. She describes herself. uh, I wasn't her self-description. She says, I'm a pessimist if I'm not careful. Uh, I think she might even have described herself as a recovering Baptist. Um, And she also wrote about questioning whether or not she was gay. I think she says that she said that she went to uh, the LGBT center in uh, uh, Los Angeles and was like reading up, and she was like, "You know what? No, I'm not. I'm not gay. I just prefer my own company." So for me, that resonates, and that you know, she's was she also she does describe herself as a hermit. Um, What she did in her work. Was I would say open up uh, a horizon for black people who were interested in science fiction, and who saw themselves as just being a little bit different from everybody else, and couldn't and might not necessarily figure out how how to put a name to that. Um, Now she didn't describe herself as an Afrofuturist. The term Afrofuturism doesn't even emerge until 1993. And neither does Delaney, but I would argue that she, as an inter, as an architect of intersectional Afrofuturism, is writing about Black women who aren't necessarily uh, perceived of as feminine, or aren't necessarily uh, on a quest to find a man, or aren't necessarily trying to uphold the tenets of middle class uh, Black. Heteronormativity. So, um, if any reader, listener out there hasn't read her work, I would suggest starting with Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents, uh, because here you see her also wrestling with religion. Uh, I think uh, in her uh, journals and in interviews, she talks about her father um, having been Baptist. Her parents, uh, her family was Baptist. And she's that I just, Their religion just wasn't mine. And and I think coming to terms with that, um, vis-a-vis science fiction is a powerful tool for other people who might themselves be thinking critically about how they find themselves either in or out of uh, religious uh, narratives.
1: Yeah, so I've actually read Butler's Parable of the Sower. Um, And considering the nature of your examination of this novel, I thought you might be able to provide some insights into the questions that I had that are connected to some of the key ideas in your book. So uh, central to Butler's narrative is Lauren, the protagonist, as you mentioned, her process of improvising what she calls a new religion called Earthseed. And the central tenet of that is her assertion that God is change. And like literally the phenomenon of change is the central God of her religion. And, uh, and so she continues throughout the book to write out, you know, flesh out this religion through um, these aphorisms that basically guide people to being beneficially adaptive, is how I would summarize it. Um, so, this raised a couple of questions for me. And at least a couple of times in the first novel, characters that she introduces to her religion, because she's very uh, evangelical about it, um, give voice to my questions. Like, for example, why do you call this a religion and not a philosophy? Why is it necessary or helpful? to call a phenomenon like change a god, which implies a sentient supernatural being, this kind of stuff. So I was really excited when Butler has characters ask Lauren um, which what I think are kind of obvious questions, but I didn't think Lauren ever actually answered. So um, <laughs> because you've thought in depth about Butler's contribution to Black religious thought, I was hoping maybe you could give me some kind of answer. What is happening here? I think...
0: Lauren is kind of enigmatic, almost like the Buddha, almost like the first Buddha, that when people are coming, or Jesus in the parables, that people are coming to her with these kind of concrete questions, and they're expecting a concrete response. Well, the problem there is, where's the problem, where's the potential for creativity and creative thinking? Where's the potential for improvisation and reformulation? Reformulation. I think it's one of the Buddha's statements that if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. Uh where the whole point of that statement is that once you begin following the Buddha and everything the Buddha says, then there's no growth. There's that no, you've now got a stagnant uh, religion. I think that. Even uh, Butler's own hesitation at characterizing Earthseed as a religion, which actually comes through in some of her interviews where people ask her, well, could this be a religion? And she's like, I don't think so. Uh, but, you know, nothing's stopping you from trying. Um, why is it necessary to call it a religion? I think that in the absence of another term that is. Use of a kind of well established term at least gives somebody a toehold on which to uh, latch on to this. If you describe it as a philosophy, well, then it just becomes a kind of the kind of thought experiment that we debate in beer halls or in coffee shops, uh, and nothing else happens there. But a religion then becomes a path for transformation. In that, and when looking at, it, you know, as having read the book, you see particular passages, right? I think each chapter begins with a um, uh, earth seed quote. These can become paths of action. Uh, once one's mind has become disciplined enough to then follow the path of action, and then the path of action helps discipline the mind. So I would kind of characterize the description of it as religion as kind of elementary step for the for the novice, so I would say that maybe Lauren's response to the character to to her uh, questioners is a way of saying, okay, look, if I if she goes too esoteric, then she loses them, right? Uh, also, we're talking about a, kind of a, a near apocalyptic world in which people are looking for something to hold on to, and she's using this as a way of building a new community, one that would hopefully be better than the communities that had preceded it. If she starts out talking about it as some high-flown philosophical orientation, she's not gonna get followers. People aren't gonna walk with her from uh, uh, that one part of Los Angeles that they had to flee to to move up to, uh, to go up to Northern California. Uh, And I think kind of uh, extending this outward, You see that in contemporary society when people like evangelical Christians will say, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. What is it that they're doing? Why are they running away from the word religion? I think, uh, but that's a conversation for another podcast. But I think in this case, she's using religion in a way that people can understand. And then actually, I guess this will get to the next question, uh, you know, talking about God. Why you know, talk about change as God. Well, once again, it's the language people can be most uh, are most comfortable with. They're most comfortable talking about God in that kind of maximal uh, sense. Well, I think she takes it up a, a notch further. Well, all we see by observing the world is that change is constant. We observe the universe, we observe nature, we observe our own selves, our bodies mm. and our, uh, our, our our temporary existence, and see that change is the one constant in the universe. And if we talk about God as being constant, <laughs> then that too, is God. So and I think it's helpful help, at least for Lauren, also for maybe Butler. And for people like me reading that to move away from the way in which we've gendered God, we've anthropomorphized God, uh, that God cares. Well, does God care? I mean, this is itself kind of an answer to the question of evil. Does God care? So, and I think in some ways referring to God as change helps us deal with the problem of evil by recognizing that chaos or entropy um, is part of change, and so we maybe shouldn't curse the change. Maybe embrace the change and be as uh, you pointed out, adaptive to the change. I, uh, again, I hope that yeah. I hope that helps. <laughs>
1: it does help actually because it makes me realize that you know, prob- like you suggest, the open-endedness is probably her strategy, as opposed to an accident or a failure, or shortcoming, or something, and so because it just opens people up to project uh, what mm-hmm. they need onto that. And it makes me totally realize why I was taking from it exactly what I was projecting onto it. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. So great. Yeah. No, thank you for that. Uh, okay. So let's move on to Janelle Monet. She's a fascinating musician that has developed a science fiction saga through her albums, music videos, and performance as an android persona she calls Cindy Mayweather. So get us up to speed on all this, and then perhaps you can explain why you see her work. And again, another lovely quote from you as performing liberated queerness uh, and also uh, through that subverting heterosexism, homophobia, white supremacy. So, yeah, tell us about her.
0: Okay, so I encountered Janelle Monae, like her debut song was called Tightrope. And I watched the video for this and I'm like, who is this little woman in this black and white tuxedo giving me all this James Brown? And she's she's dancing and she's giving me James Brown. She's giving me a psychedelic. She's giving she's just serving all kinds of um, like George Clinton uh, James Brown and just calling back so much of of um, prior funk, but also in this kind of weird sci fi saga. And so uh, I began listening. I-, I went back and bought uh, her EP, uh, which was called I think the uh, it was called Metropolis. Uh, Metropolis. It's um, the second album. Metropolis. The Arc Android. Uh, the Electric Lady and her latest album, Dirty Computer, are all part of this kind of saga about this uh, Alpha Platinum 9000 android, Cindy Mayweather, who falls in love with a human, uh, and uh, Anthony Greendown. And now a lot of the songs kind of, are kind of loosely tied to this ongoing saga or this android persona. And she talks about using the android persona As a way of uh, critiquing racism and white supremacy, because in the world that she sets up, androids and humans should never fall in love. So Anthony, you know, Sir Greendown and uh, Cindy Mayweather's love is forbidden. And it's the android they're winding up hunting down. We never actually hear anything about this Anthony Greendown, but it's the android that... Uh, the droid control is looking for. And there's a kind of a rebellion that springs up around protecting this android. So I think her choosing the android is thinking about, is her choosing this uh, entity that we can consider the other. I mean, if we look at science fiction like Battlestar Galactica, you know, and other sci-fi, what is it that we as human beings tend to do with robots? We tend to abuse them and use them for our own particular ends. Well, look at, chattel slavery in this world, how we said, okay, well, this group of people over here are not human, don't have feelings, don't have identities. Uh, We can use them as we will. I think she uses that android uh, uh, motif to critique white supremacy uh, in the world. And I think by uh, the Electric Lady, and especially in Dirty Computer, we see the shift towards queerness. And let me put a pin here and say that prior to The Electric Android, The Electric Lady, um, in interviews, people would always be asking her, Who is she dating? What's her sexual orientation? And she was enema- enigmatic about that. I remember one interview. She said, "You hey, look. If women like me, I want them to buy my album. If men like me, I want them to buy my album." So she wasn't out here saying, "Okay, look, I'm I'm gay, or I'm queer, or I'm pan." She, uh, she didn't come out as pansexual until uh, the Dirty Computer album, which came out right, was before COVID. So I want to say. Seventeen or probably 2018. So in some ways I would look at the albums as the kind of progression of her comfortability with her own self, such to the point that by the time we got to Dirty Computer, I look at this album as this fusion of funk, of pop, of hip hop, of R&B, of queerness, of liberated femininity, um, and liberated queerness, I sorry, liberated queerness. That basically, well, I mean, I would say it literally, literally, but it, like this is an album that, has, that says "fuck the patriarchy." Uh, and her uh, song "Pink" is an ode to the vagina. So, um, for me, listening to her uh, was—I I have to. For me, I kept saying I have to write about this because I've. N- the only other artist that I would say that I listen to with that kind of intensity, who I think doesn't get that same kind of, doesn't get the great level of respect that it is due, is somebody like Michelle and Indigay um who also, her work defies neat categorization. And I think that's the other thing about Janelle Monet, is that I think her work, her body of music defies a neat categorization. Um so as it subverts heterosexism, sexism, homophobia, and white supremacy, I see her refusing to um I see her refusing to do things like be a quote unquote typical pop singer. If we look at a lot of um acts that, well, and and I wanna put this in parentheses. I would also bracket this. I'm not talking about people like Megan The Stallion or Lizzo. <laughs> I'm looking at them as, I would say, the children of uh, Janelle Monet. <laughs> but I think that there was a period in time in which music videos emphasized a certain kind of sexuality that was still subject to the male gaze, and gaze as in G-A-Z-E, not male gaze as in homosexuals that women were subjected to the kinds of uh, views that men wanted to have. Uh, Janelle Monáe doesn't do that. Uh, And as a matter of fact, is quite adamant about not doing that. I think I mentioned in the book that on Twitter, some person, of course, uh, made a comment about how she dresses and... I think her response was sit down. I'm not here for male consumption. So I think she is explicit and intentional about um, subverting these kinds of heteronormative, homophobic, and supremacist uh, expectations that we tend to bring to uh, pop music, R&B music, funk, and so forth.
1: So next you turn your attention to Afrofuturism in the fictional universes of Star Trek and Black Panther. Uh, and as you uh you've already pointed out that Star Trek generally isn't really uh afrofuturism proper and oftentimes has some issues with race. But Black Captain Benjamin Sisko of Deep Space Nine brings a more Afrofuturism dimension to this particular series in the franchise. So you argue that Cisco can be understood through the lens of Afrofuturism as a prophet and a savior, which Trekkies might find a rather surprising claim. So let's maybe start with some background on how religion is treated in the Star Trek franchise as a whole, and then how the existing scholarship has responded to this topic as well.
0: That's uh, another one of those questions that I could, I, I, uh, the first question about how religion is treated in the Star Trek franchise could be uh, summed up in one word, badly. <laughs> um, yeah. it, it, uh, if you, goodness gracious, uh, Gene Roddenberry, I was going to say, bless his heart, which, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Gene Roddenberry, I, I am a Southerner. Uh, Gene Roddenberry was famously opposed to religion. Just, uh, you can dig up any number of quotes of his about how little regard he has or had for religion. Uh, So in Star Trek, like in the original series, sometimes the Alien of the Week would try to pass itself off as a god, Uh, the episode Who Mourns for Adonai. Is uh, 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 focuses around this entity that calls itself Apollo that says, "Oh, I was, I am Apollo. I am one of the Olympian gods, and the rest have gone away. But you're all going to he- worship me." Um, so you've got episodes like that. The movie Star Trek V: The Final Frontier, the Enterprise literally goes off on a search for God, only to find that it's an entity that has been imprisoned. So and actually is malevolent. Star Trek the next generation there's an episode called who watches the Watchers uh where a uh alien race uh, views comes to view Captain Picard as a god and so the they have to try to undo the work uh that has the, this con, quote unquote cultural contamination uh star trek as a uh, um, ser- as a franchise has not Dealt well with religion. I would argue that it wasn't until Deep Space Nine that we got to a series that actually took religion seriously and said, okay, well, wait a minute, what if, you know, this religion um, isn't uh, um, just malevolent gods who want to control the universe or something? So, but here you have Benjamin Sisko as, if you will, the kind of accidental prophet. It is He's not Bajoran. It's the Bajorans who worship these entities that live within a wormhole. And for them, the emissary to the prophets was always going to be a Bajoran, not uh, a human being. So Sisko, and Sisko himself being a Starfleet officer and being a member of the Federation, is at first absolutely reluctant as, as opposed to being called the emissary to the prophets, so and there are several episodes within Deep Space Nine. I would actually recommend, if any, if anybody has not watched Star Trek DS Nine, watch the first the the, um, the first season finale episode in the hands of the prophets. You have this whole tension between uh, the separation of church and state being played out within a school on the space station. Uh, there's the episode. Uh, there are several episodes, but um, I would say start DS9 is the first series that has attended seriously to religion. Uh, the scholarship. Uh, I think one of the most prominent texts is on sac- uh, sacred ground. It's about Star Trek and uh, religion. It's Jennifer Porter. And oh, I can't remember who the co-editor's book, co-author's name on that book is. Uh, most texts that have dealt with star trek and religion tend to do it comparatively say so, okay well here's where we see religion in star trek here's where we see kind of kirk as a god here's where we see the monomyth uh in science fiction in star trek um but of course they tend to write about all of star trek <laughs> uh i think there's maybe one book that's out of print that deals with Star Trek, The Next Generation, uh, but that's also about racism, not about religion. Um, I think some of the more popular books tend to write about Star Trek and philosophy, or how might we think about Star Trek as uh, as part of religious discourse. Um, but I would say that that scholarship about Star Trek... Or sci-fi in general, and religion is growing again. We're, I think, we're in an a, we're in a period now where start where science fiction is being taken more seriously than say even ten years ago.
1: Well, that's good to hear. Um, so, as you argue, DS Nine is a departure from its predecessors in some significant ways. Uh, so, tell us first about this, and then how you've come to understand Cisco's significance as an Afrofuturist figure as a professor and savior figure, at least in one episode in particular. Yeah, tell us mm-hmm. about that.
0: Well, um, when looking at the pro- like Star Trek, the original series and Star Trek DS um, the orig- uh, Next Generation, what you saw was a crew on this spaceship on the USS Enterprise. So they'd go to a planet, there'd be some p- problem that would usually reflect some societal issue that we experience here on Earth. It would be solved by the wiser heads of, you know, the Federation, and then off the Enterprise would go to its next adventure. And in both of those series, you had a white male, heterosexual, presumably, uh, captaining the ship, and it's a crew of spotless morality. Everyone's just kind of shiny and happy, and I think people would joke about the next generation and say that the Enterprise looked like a Hilton, that the bridge of the Enterprise looked like a, um, a hotel conference room. Um and even Gene Roddenberry when they started doing the next generation he said he didn't want there to be any conflict among the crew. Well if you're writing television the only conflict can then come from going to the alien of the week. But that's not human beings. We are <laughs> we are a fractious lot. And I you know even if we go into space we will still be that. Um DS9 was set on a space station. So you don't, you're not going to a different planet every week. Well, at least not until the Defiant shows up. This is a show that, from its outset, had conflict among the crew. First of all, had a black uh, lead, a black male lead, which uh, at the time they were worried about the powers that be at uh, Paramount were worried. <laughs> uh, you have a black man who's a widower. He's raising his son by himself. His his wife died uh, at this uh, apocalyptic battle, the Battle of Wolf 359, which Trekkies know as the battle in which the Borg uh, invaded the Federation. Um, So he's also angry because Picard had been assimilated by the Borg and helped carry out this uh, massacre. So Cisco meets Picard in the first episode of DS9, and it is not uh, warm fuzzies. It is absolutely contentious. So, uh, again, right out the gate, DS9 is basically saying we are not the same kind of Star Trek that you think you know. Um, by the episode Far Beyond the Stars, Cisco has, and this is a sixth in the sixth season of the series. Sisko is not fighting his role as an emissary to the prophets. He's in some ways embraced it. He's embraced it, even if it makes him somewhat uncomfortable. Um, And I think here we have a series in which not only do you have a black male uh, lead, he's a prophetic figure for an entire alien race. Neither Kirk nor Picard would um, be such a thing. Further. Sisko is basically the front he, uh, the front line leader in the war against the Dominion. Um, he's a multifaceted character. He himself, again, he's human. He's given him, he's, you know, impatience, anger, so joy, sorrow, so forth and so on. I think another significance here is this, in this show, we see three generations of uh, a Black family. We see Sisko's father. Joseph Sisko, Ben himself, and his son, Jake. And we see that they're a loving family. And we see that, not that they don't get into disagreements, but that Sisko, who is not a perfect person, again, there's a whole episode where Sisko uh, tricks the Romulans into getting into the war. Uh, We see a multifaceted Black male character on a sci-fi show in the 1990s. And I think that that um, needs to not just be acknowledged, but I think that needs to be celebrated and really understood in the context of when we're still in 2023, talking about representation of Black people on television. Um, Oh, and actually before we move on, um, for me, again, coming back to the episode Far Beyond the Stars, where he become, where Cisco becomes this Afrofuturistic figure is in the jumping back and forth between himself and the Black sci-fi writer Benny Russell, where Benny Russell, who was a Black sci-fi writer in the 50s, is seeing visions from the story that he's writing, Deep Space Nine, and he sees... There's one scene where he pulls open the shades and he sees the reflection, the reflection that's looking back at him is Ben Sisko. And then at the end of the episode, the reflection that Ben Sisko sees in the the portal looking out into the stars is Benny Russell. And that, to me, is a powerful set of images that we see ourselves in the future. The future sees itself in us and that we are responsible for bringing about those futures.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a super cool episode um that has a that really takes advantage of of those parallel time periods. Um but yeah, let's let's move on to think about uh Black Panther. Uh, Here's one that many of our listeners will be familiar with, the MCU blockbuster hit. Um, So I was surprised to read in your book, however, about how some African-American Christian voices picked it up as an attempt to um, really draw strong parallels between that narrative and Christian theology. So I'm guessing that many um, listeners will be less familiar with that dimension as well. So first tell us how they attempted to do this and then explain how you see the film speaking to black liberation theology and a hopeful eschatology.
0: Um, well, actually, let me take the last question first. Uh, uh, how do I see the film speaking to black liberation theology? Um. What I saw uh, in kind of I would say um stilted attempts and uh attempts at teasing out black liberation theology from this movie and my concern there is well Wakanda is not a christian nation and if you're trying to tease out a black liberation theology from this movie you're it's <laughs> the analog is like trying to put a USB-C USB uh, port in a uh, HDMI plug. It's not going to fit. They might do similar things, but they're just not compatible because Black Liberation Theology is a thoroughgoingly Christian discourse. It's a Christian dialogue. It's it's you're taking up the tenets of Christ, uh of the Christian God that we've seen in Western theology. And talking about them vis a vis Black Christian lives, experiences, and so forth. Black Panther, the 2018 movie, isn't doing that. As a matter of fact, I think it's taking great care to separate itself from uh, what we might understand as Christian theology or even kind of Christian. I think it's, you might take, you might try to impose kind of, a christian narrative i.e. uh T'challa as a savior figure you might try to look at uh Killmonger as a satanic figure but even then i think well that that might need some nuance and some depth might need me to write another chapter on this i don't know um But what I did see, actually going back to the first part of your question, what I saw were uh, Black preachers like uh, Jamal Bryant literally taking the uh, poster, the poster of T'Challa sitting on a throne and photoshopping Bryant's head onto T'Challa's body and talking about how to build a Black Christian nation. And I'm like, that's not Wakanda, (laughs) That's something altogether different. Um, I've seen a couple of essays where people have been writing about Black Panther and Black liberation theology, and I uh, I, I, I keep saying to myself, no, that's not what this is. Uh, and even eschatology is uh, a Christian concept. Right, the idea of talking about the end, you know, uh, the end of things. Um, well, that presupposes a kind of linear approach to time. And now I'm, you know, Black Panther doesn't necessarily do this, nor does Wakanda forever. Uh, or, well, maybe it does. I don't know. We'll see what what the third Black Panther movie looks like. But, and I, you know, I talk about eschatology in a later chapter, but I don't really talk about eschatology in my chapter on Black Panther um because i'm beginning to wonder if the word eschatology is a useful term maybe we need to come up with something else um but i will say that black panther does point towards a hopeful uh future in that when wakanda in, ceases its isolationism we see at the end um t'challa uh being approached by a uh black boy who asks the question, who are you? And the movie just ends. But that's an ongoing question throughout this movie, who are you? If the question is about the future, the question is about who you see yourself as being in the world so you can bring about a good future. I think the interesting thing here is that when you look at someone like Killmonger, his, if you look at Killmonger and T'Challa, you ask them their question of the future, what does the future look like? you would have gotten different answers for uh, Kilmonger, His vision of the future was Wakanda rules everyone. Whereas for T'Challa, his vision of the future is a stable, secure Wakanda that hasn't deviated from its past. Well, the problem is then it becomes a bit uh, stagnant. It was the women. It was Nakia and Okoye and, uh, who had to kind of shake him out of that kind of complacency that says, okay, no, Uh, Wakanda can't be isolated forever. So uh, I guess it's always I'm taking the question saying, well, maybe we uh, aren't talking about the future as we might find in discussions of Christian eschatology, but how might we be thinking about the future in relationship to our present?
1: In your next chapter, you examine eschatology and utopia further in the context of Black religious thought. Um, I'll ask you first about poet, activist, and jazz musician Sun Ra. He's a truly amazing character, like science fiction basically walked right off the page into life, which is why he is considered by many another one of these grandfathers of Afrofuturism. So. Mm-hmm. I'll ask you to give a description of his life and work, of course. But I also just wanted to add for any listener who is interested in learning more about Sun Ra, uh, I did an interview on new books in African-American studies back in February with William Seitz about his book. It's a a type of biography uh, called Sun Ra's Chicago. And you can also find on this channel an interview from 2017 with Paul Youngquist about his definitive biography uh, of Sun Ra called A Pure Solar World. So for anybody interested in doing a more of a deep dive into Sun Ra. But in any case, Roger, please tell us about this paragon of Afrofuturism and how he saw science fiction as having the potential to offer black people a roadmap to a better future.
0: Well, I would also point people to uh, uh, Paul Youngquist's uh, book. Um, I am not a biographer of Sun Ra. Um, I was focused more on... uh, uh, Space is the place. The, his movie that he made, and saying, "Okay, well, what's going on here in this this movie that I'd heard about, but we hadn't really taken up what's going on here with us?" For example, not really addressing it as um, as its own as as an eschatological um, piece of filmmaking. So I would, when I watched it, I said, "Okay, it's interesting that when you watch Space is the Place, Ryan Coogler, the director of Black Panther, I'm like, okay, he. It seemed to me that he took a lot from Space is the Place and incorporated it into Black Panther. If you were paying attention, for example, Oakland being a setting, um, the Royal Talon being a kind of, or when the kids refer to it as a Bugatti spaceship." the spaceships or the ships themselves being uh, these kinds of stylized uh, references to things like a Dogon mask or, uh, or spaceships that generate music. I think Sun Ra's argument about music being a kind of healing speaks to a longer tradition within the African diaspora in which music is not solely for entertainment, but rather music is that which gives life. Music speaks to life. Music speaks to death. Music speaks to our hopes, to our fears, to the things that are constitutive of life. So Sun Ra looking at America and saying, this place is almost irredeemable. We must be somewhere else. We must go somewhere else. So space is the place is, in some ways, kind of, uh, uh, actually, some, something I should have put in the book, uh, an exodus narrative. It's, well, we have, we've got to leave this place. This place isn't for us. This there, This does not bring life. So, um, what he might have seen in science fiction wasn't in just science fiction alone. it was wedded to jazz to um, to how we produce music um and i you know I would probably be even be hesitant to say that, okay, let me think about this that when we talk about like Sun Ra in relationship to science fiction, I think also we tend to get a little stuck talking about sci-fi as a as a kind of uh, genre that is easily define, defined. I would say that Sun Ra uses elements of science fiction, but merges those elements of science fiction with, and we'll probably get to this in a minute, um, Of the kinds of fantastical storytelling that we saw in groups like the Nation of Islam and so forth that want to move beyond this kind of taken for granted world and then present a possibility in a way it's going to make you sit up and take notice. Because if he had just been doing jazz and singing about liberation, well, well, that's pretty much what everybody else is doing. But what's going to make him stand out? Talking about space being somewhere we need to be by using images. Uh, and it's, I don't think it's uh, um, an accident that when we see Sun Ra, we also see George Clinton and Funkadelic and Parliament. We also see Patti LaBelle and, and her group LaBelle. If you go back and look at the funk acts of the 70s, their outfits were inspired by science fiction their music was experimental. It was attempting to break out of the Motown mold or this kind of mold or that kind of mold and saying, no, we've got something else to say and we need to say it in a a different way, a way that's going to catch your attention and make you think. So, you know, for somebody like Sun Ra, music is supposed to also make you think. Um, So literally, Space is the Place is... Uh, that kind of eschatological uh, hopefulness that says, "Okay, you know, look, we black people we, we could be in another world, we may be from another world, we don't know um and it 's that way of giving us a narrative uh when white supremacy has sought to destroy all hopes of a narrative, so i you know again, I look at someone like Sun Ra as helping create new narratives.
1: So let's turn now to the Nation of Islam. You consider its mother plane as an example of a 20th century Afrofuturistic eschatology. But as you point out, it's not usually considered in this context. So if you would tell us about the beliefs of this group and why you've made this connection.
0: Um, The Nation of Islam uh, was an, actually it was a group called the Lost Found Nation of Islam that what we understand as the Nation of Islam was actually reconstituted by Louis Farrakhan uh, in the late 70s. But the Nation of Islam, um, much like a number of religious, Black religious movements in the United States uh, that are not Christian uh, in nature, uh, argue that the religion that Black people have had foisted upon them in this country is not theirs, that it is not going to liberate you, and that you must find something that will. Now, for the Nation of Islam, their argument is that Islam is the original religion of Black peoples. And as with any esoteric religious movement, you're going to have narratives that to the uninitiated within the religion will seem strange, absurd, odd, and so forth and so on. Uh, Elijah Muhammad, who is the founder of the Nation of Islam, argued that there was going to be some kind of great reckoning in which white people would be called to account for their sins and that black people would be spirited away from this wretched world now using passages from um daniel from elijah and so forth and so on uh, primarily from the hebrew prophets uh muhammad argued elijah muhammad argued that there was going to be this great uh plane this 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 thing that is more powerful than these so-called powerful nations and again remember the nation of islam uh comes in a prominent prominence into national prominence in the fifties and sixties. It had been around since 1931, but comes into prominence in the fifties and sixties and is largely located within the major urban centers. And that's gonna be where you're gonna have contact between black peoples from the diaspora, black people beating people who practice other religions or practice no religion whatsoever. So um, in that, In that case, um, the nation of Islam is looking out and saying, okay, look, all, again, especially in the 50s and 60s, you have this conflict, this ongoing conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union. Well, the nation of Islam says, okay, well, they think they have the power to destroy. Well, no, God has the power to destroy. And what God is going to use is this thing called the mother plane, this, or it's a spinoff of the the wheel of fire. So you see this notion that God will break into history, will destroy the wicked, and will rescue the faithful. As with religions of this kind, as they begin, they always set themselves over and against the dominant society. I mean, again, look at Christianity in its formative stages. Look at Islam in its formative year, years and decades, Buddhism and so forth. They set themselves over and against um, a society that they perceive to be uh, depraved. And it is one of the kind of primary tenets of the nation of Islam is that American society is a depraved society. And um, that Black people must remain uh, if they want salvation, must remain untainted by white supremacy. so you have uh, this mother plane or the mother wheel that becomes a kind of visual it's a way in which the the adherent, the person who's listening, can visualize this God breaking into history.
1: Interesting. So the culmination of these explorations is your idea that because Afrofuturism tends to critique and revise Black religious experience... It can provide Black nerds uh, or others with resources to find their way to a more nuanced religious home somewhere between standard church and a like a vacuous spirituality. So you tie this closely to the notion of the Black subject as its own religious identity, as you put it. So I find these tremendously exciting ideas. Can you please unpack that for us?
0: Well, as I've said before, um, I am... An iconoclast uh I am not a church person or uh I was churched as a kid, but I'm not churched anymore um and as a black nerd or blurred um I saw science fiction as my way of finding myself or being in the world, and afrofuturism as a kind of way of describing. Not defining, and I, I want to be clear here, I'm not looking at Afrofuturism as something that is so overridingly rigid that it defines my experience. I would argue that it is a part of, it's part of a way of making sense of that experience, of those experiences. So it becomes a description, not a definition. Um, so when I talk about the Black subject as its own religious identity, um, We are all in the process of creating ourselves. Many of us do it within the confines of a religious structure. Many of us do this within the confines of the Baptist Church, the Methodist Church, the Catholic Church, and so forth and so on. And... For me, I'm like, well, what about those of us who aren't in those structures? What about those of us who might say, um, I have cobbled together my principles of life vis-a-vis Star Wars or watching Black Panther, which I am noticing a lot of people, especially now that Wakanda Forever is out, are saying, you know, what, how do we talk about, for example, grief? How might something like Wakanda Forever be a way of us contemplating uh, our own grief? Um, how do we think about ourselves? So if I'm talking about the Black subject as its own religious identity, I construct, well, even then, the construct of the, I construct my idea of the self. I construct my idea of the self. I construct my, informed by, it's not absent. It is not tabula rasa. It's not just completely blank, Uh, but it is informed by and may be critical of Prior religious traditions, it may look to emergent religions and say, "Hey, this might be helpful." It might look to elements of popular culture and say, "This might, this is actually speaking to me in a way that helps me uh, cope with the world." helps me relate to the world, and helps me think about myself in relationship to myself as well as others. I don't want people to hear the Black subject as its own religious identity as me talking about the Black religious subject or the Black spiritual subject as a kind of uh, rugged individualist who is sitting over here on an island unto themselves in conversation with no one. Rather, I think of that subject as we're engaging in deep reflection on our, on ourselves, through ourselves, but also in connection and in conversation with other people, with other uh, selves. Uh, I think the uh, if what's exciting for me is the capacity. For me, what's exciting is the capacity for human imagination. That if I can sit on my back porch and look at the stars and talk with them and then think, I need to write about this. If other people can go see Black Panther and say, this is something for which we've been waiting, let's talk about this, then we have some wonderful prospects um, for thinking about Black selves in a multiplicity of religious and spiritual ways.
1: Well, that brings me to my last question. Then, I wanted to conclude by asking you what you might suggest as future directions for Afrofuturistic religious thought.
0: That is a good question. I, I guess the 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 uh, the shorter answer is I don't know. Um, the longer response. Well, you know, I would leave it to those who are fascinated by Afrofuturism. I think one thing I've seen, what I think I've begun to see that has begun to trouble me, is a kind of one-to-one correlation with Afrofuturism and Afro pessimism, and I think that that's dangerous. Uh, but that's a whole other discussion about Afro pessimism, uh, which, uh, if I understand it correctly, simply says that though that white supremacy will always view Black people as inferior, and there's no escaping that. I tend to think of that as a kind of nihilistic approach. Um, I would hope that people read, if people read this and critique this and say, okay, well, you know, he doesn't talk about God. And if somebody can write an Afrofuturistic theology, more power to them, I would be more than happy to read that, <laughs> because they might be able to do it better than I could. If um, someone is able to say well let's talk about ethics from uh, from looking at afrofuturism let's let's look at afrofuturistic writers and say, what have they said that we might from which we might glean a way of looking at the uh at ethics or being in the world um again, I would be excited to see that i uh coming back to my shorter answer, I simply don't know. Because prior to writing this book, I didn't think I was going to write a book on Afrofuturism and Black religious thought. Um, so I think it really just depends on uh, what future scholar what really kind of, uh, if you will, um, what really excites them about talking about Afrofuturism. What directions make them, what directions feed them and give them life?
1: Makes sense. Well, Roger, I've taken up a lot of your time, but in the few minutes we have left, can you tell us what you're currently working on?
0: Well, um, I, I keep asking myself, do I have a third book? I don't know. Um, I have been kicking around a couple of ideas. Uh, I've been kicking around an idea of writing a book called homofuturism. Uh, So I, you know, and asking myself, well, where do I go from here? I um, Actually, I'm writing an essay uh, where I take part of my chapter on Deep Space Nine and begin really diving into talking about Ben Sisko uh, and Benny Russell in the context of the Book of Revelation. So uh, I'm really going to wrestle more with how we see the Book of Revelation or this concept of divine revelation playing out in this particular episode.
1: Fascinating. So yeah, that yeah. sounds cool. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, your book was a real pleasure. I'm a Sun Ra fan. I'm an Afrofuturism fan. And so I was really glad to have the opportunity to be able to chat with you about it.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad that you enjoyed the book.
1: Uh, <laughs> I it's, did. It's, it's,
0: I, uh, I keep saying that when I wrote it, it um, as I say, it was a lab, it's a labor of love. I had seen a lot of people when they write books, they would always say writing is a lonely endeavor. And for me, this was not that. Um, so I'm, again, when people say that they have enjoyed it, part of me was like, you did really? How? Okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I would encourage listeners to check it out. It's an easy, like the, the prose is not difficult or discouraging to read at all. And the ideas that you bring to the table are, are just really fascinating. It's coming from a very unique angle in my experience and also your subject matter, you know, the, the people, the music, the art that you're talking about is just wonderful. So yeah, really great. All right. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, if you have a third book in you, please do come back.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It might be another 10 years in the making, but I will.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, hopefully I'll be here then too. But uh, thanks so much, Roger. Goodbye. All right.
0: Thank thank you. Bye-bye.
1: I want to thank you for listening to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Professor Roger Sneed about his new book, The Dreamer and the Dream, Afrofuturism and Black Religious Thought, published by Ohio State University Press. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review in your podcast player, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. I'm also interested in hearing from you about your thoughts on this podcast and the material we cover. Tell me about it. You can find me on Twitter at Carrielinland that's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. Also, be sure to like the New Books Network page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter where you'll see every time we post a new interview. In the meantime, I'll wish you an à la prochaine from Quebec until my next conversation about new books.